happen. Good morning, church. It's my privilege and joy to be with you to uh, open God's Word with you. We are going to be in Isaiah uh, chapter 40, beginning in verse 9. Uh, before I get to that, you know, the, the longer I walk with the Lord, and I've walked with Him as a follower of Jesus for a few years now, and it's impressed me more and more the complexity, the many facets of our Lord's character. His great kindness toward those of us who love Him as His sons and daughters. The great kindness, the great care He has for us. Uh, Isaiah 66, for example, He compares Himself to a mother. A mother. He's not afraid to compare Himself to a woman and the tenderness a mother has for her baby. And in Isaiah 66, if you go there, don't go there now, but if you go there at some point, you'll see that he talks about his care for his children like a mother cares for a baby, her baby, nursing that baby, nursing the baby, and carrying the baby on her hip. We've all, we can all rec recall or recall seeing that or recall doing that as mothers and fathers of our babies, and then bouncing that baby on her knee in play. Just the love that our God has for his sons and his daughters. Uh, Zechariah 2.8 talks about uh, his sons and daughters being like the apple of his eye. And so if anyone has ever had a poke in the eye, that hurts. But the apple of the eye is the pupil of the eye. And when a person hurts one of his sons or daughters, it hurts him like he's being poked in the apple, the very pupil of his eye. Not that God has eyes like that, but it's like that to him. He's trying to help us understand what it's like. And in Psalm 17, David asks that the Lord treat him and care for him as he would care for the apple of his own eye. And so the tenderness of God and how Jesus, you'll remember in Matthew, how he wept over the city of Jerusalem and said, how I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. And he cried over Jerusalem. At the same time, you have that tenderness of, and kindness of the Lord. And at the same time, you have what is really a severe God. The God who likes this and he doesn't like that. The God who loves that and he hates this. The God who says, I want you to do it this way, not that way. I need you to do this, not that. I need you to build the ark, Noah, like this. Here's how I want it built, like this. Be careful, do it right. This is what I want. The building of the temple. Carry the ark, for example, the ark of the covenant, a certain way. Don't carry it carelessly. Be careful. I am the Lord your God. I am holy. I am perfect. You are not. I am God your people. It's the complexity of his character, the irresistible, to me anyway, the irresistible nature of who he is that I find so compelling that I cannot resist him. I, I don't want to resist that. So let me ask you a question. Why don't people go to church? I drove by this morning and I see there's townhouses right here. There's houses all over. What are people doing on Sunday morning other than being in church, a Bible-preaching church, a church who is composed of men and women and children who love the Lord and want to serve Him and seek Him. Why aren't people doing it? Why is it that they're not here or elsewhere where the Bible is taught and people love Him? Why? Well, I chased this around in the Bible, I, not in the Bible, I chased this around, did some research um, about why people say they don't go to church or why they've been to church and no longer attend church at all. And I'm guessing that you can probably know what some of these reasons are. 
Here you go. Here's a list. The church is irrelevant to life. It's irrelevant. I don't need to go to church. It's irrelevant to me. I don't need formal church. I already have friends. The church hurt me. I had a need, and the church failed to meet it. I needed something in particular, and the church failed to meet my need. I'm too tired to go to church. I work hard Monday through Friday. I, I really, really work hard. I have a busy life. I have children. I'm too tired. Yikes. The church is anti-science. Stupid people go to church. It's too narrow. You're too restrictive. You people are way too narrow for me. I don't like it. I'm not going. There's hypocrites in the church. Hmm. Hypocrites. You all hypocrites. My kid plays sports on Sundays. I don't want to go to church because my kid needs to play sports on Sundays. That's why I don't go to church. I have my own ways to connect with God. Uh, we would call that a self-styled way to reach out to God. Not that that's adequate in any way. The church's teachers are boring. They're confusing. I don't understand the Bible, and I, I don't really get anything out of it, so I'm not going. The text this morning from Isaiah 40, I think we'll answer a lot of those questions. I'm not going to go through and answer those, but as we go through that text, I think you'll see what some of the Lord's answers are to those questions or those criticism, criticisms of the church. So I'm going to dive into that. You ready to dive into Isaiah 40? As my granddaughter says when I'm playing with her, she says, let's do this, Papa. Okay, here we go. Let me pray first, and then we'll go into Isaiah 40. Father, this is a beautiful morning. We thank you for it. You give us the sun to warm us on a cold day. You give us the ability to speak and to listen. The ability to even get out of bed to be here together. Lord, I pray that you would guard my mouth, you would open my heart to what you have to say, and that these people would, uh, these precious people would listen to your words and seek to follow you with all their heart. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 40. I just want to set this up a little bit for you. Isaiah was an amazing man of God, a prophet of God. He, he, uh, he ministered in the divided kingdom for about 40 years. He had a tough ministry, but one that was highly privileged. Isaiah 6 uh, uh, notes that uh, he actually saw the very throne room of God, and he was overwhelmed, of course, with God's holiness, and he was on his face. And God, of course, being God, gracious to his people, caused him to be cleansed with a hot coal on his lips. I am a man of unclean lips, he said, and I live among a people of unclean lips, Isaiah 6. So that was a great privilege, but came, great privilege came with great burden for Isaiah. He spent 40 years, as I said, ministering and speaking about God's sense of things in this culture. He had bad news. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah is a ministry of judgment where Isaiah is telling the people, God says this, and, and he doesn't like your apostasy, having an intellectual understanding of God without its heart. He doesn't like your idolatry, worshiping things, worshiping things and making things that are diminishing him. He hates that. Following the rituals of the law without the heart that the law is supposed to engender in us, the love for God, why do we do this? We do it because we love him, but if we do it mechanically, he, he hates that. He hates it. He judged it 
For the first 39 chapters, the people in uh, the divided kingdom, Judah and Israel, were being hammered by God. God was using people to punish his own people, using pagans to punish his people. They were in pain. But, you know, the, the principle I would take from this is that God sometimes uses pain to get our attention. Sometimes he says, you know, I love you. I'm going to have to hurt you to get you to pay attention to me. So by the time we get to Isaiah 40, we're ready to move now into what we would call the ministry of comfort for God's people. They've paid the price for their apostasy, for their idolatry, and for their failure to do the meetings with God and the rituals that God had set up with a proper heart. He's done with that now. Now he's going to get into the ministry of comfort for God's people now that they're ready to listen to him. You'll notice in, in uh, the first verse, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, okay? That's the ministry of comfort beginning right there. What I want to do, though, is skip down to verse 9. And I'm going to start in verse 9 and go right through the end of Isaiah 40. So listen with me as we read through it together. Starting in verse 9 of Isaiah 40. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, and he will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? An idol! A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He, is, he who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches, out, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes their rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, 
Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows upon them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Getting back to verse 9. As I said, this is a ministry of comfort. The ministry of judgment is done now. He's done. He's got a ministry of comfort here. But you'll notice in verse 9, he's, he's instructing through Isaiah for people to get up. These are, the assumption is that people who know him are to get up to high places and speak the good news throughout the kingdom. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Don't be weak. Be a herald of good news, one who proclaims the good news of the Lord. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. He says, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Now, the assumption here, as I said, is that these people know who the Lord is. And that's why we have, for example, in a couple of different sections in the subsequent verses, uh, don't you know this? Haven't you heard of this before? You were instructed as children of the law of the Lord, and you can see from the creation in the heavens that God exists. Don't you know this? The assumption would be that everyone's supposed to know this if you're Jewish, but don't forget they just came through a long series and season of rebellion against God. So the assumption here in verses 9 and 9 is that these people know who God is and will speak for him. Now, how many times have we assumed that people speak for God and know him, but they don't? They may speak with authority, but they speak wrongly of him. As I pondered all of these sections in Isaiah and other other places, this verse, I kept hearkening back in my mind and my heart to a, a conversation I had with a bunch of people at Zenith Electronics in Deerfield, Illinois, which is not far from here. You wouldn't know this, but I used to work for Zenith Electronics. You know, the, the folks who made television sets and um, uh, the quality goes in before the name goes on. And I was brought in as a young man in the 90s um, uh, to translate engineers. And I had no idea what I was doing. But somehow I landed this position uh, we were in a fight with other companies to win the, the uh, technological standard for high-definition television. And so a large part of my job was to meet with these electrical engineers, listen to what they were saying, and translate into English that people could understand. It's, it seemed to me that about 90% of my life I had no idea what I was talking about. And no idea what they were talking about. It was like trying to learn Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew in a month and then giving speeches in all three languages, alternating paragraphs in each language. It was impossible. And I used to write things to try and translate, and I would get notes back. This is stupid. What are you talking about? 
I said, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm trying to translate. What did I do wrong? And they would tell me. I, I try to fix it. But this is, this is the, uh, the culture in which I was living uh, in that era where we were talking about compressed signals, NTSB, HDTV, bits and bytes, and all these things that were so maddening. Well, one day, I go down to the cafeteria, and I fill my tray with food, and I walk down, and I see 10 about 10 engineers, just a bunch of them, people I was talking with on a regular basis. And uh, as I came to the table, there was a chair right in the middle. There were 10 of them. And I thought, okay, be ready to talk about technology. These guys are going to talk technology, and I'm not going to know what they're talking about. That's okay. And then before I could sit down, somebody, all of them were looking at me, and all, somebody said to me, yeah, Benjamin here thinks the Messiah is coming. And you know how your mind can think about 25 times faster than your mouth? I thought... Uh, you know, Lord, they already think I'm stupid. You really want me to do this? I'm not gifted in evangelism. You know that I'm not really, really good at this. I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll speak for you, but you really want me to do this? As I'm thinking this through, I, I, and I, before I sat down, I said, okay. Well, I said, the Messiah has been here once, and he's coming back a second time. And five of them, literally, five of them got up and walked away. Great evangelical, evangelistic effort there, so I lost half my audience. But five of them stayed. Five of them were right there. So I spent the next 30 minutes talking with them about my understanding of what the Scripture teaches about the Messiah and how we need to live for him. They stayed, and we were engaging in conversation. Well, they gradually trickled away one by one until finally, after about 35 or 45 minutes, there was one man to my immediate left. And he looks at me and he says, uh, sneering, sneering. He said, you're nothing but a born-againer. Have you ever heard of being a born-againer? I've never been, I'd never been called a born-againer. Born uh, I'd never heard the term before, and I have never heard it since. But he said, you're nothing but a born-againer. And he was sneering as he said it, and just he and I. And I said, born-againer? I said, Are you, you go to church? He goes, yeah, I go to church. I said, where do you go to church? And he's telling me he named a mainline denomination that I knew. I knew what that was about. I said, well, what do they teach you in your church? Well, we learn how to be good people. We, we, we learn what to do in, the, in our culture to be nice. And I said, oh. I said, and I'm a born-againer. He goes, yeah, you're just a born-againer. I said, you know, Jesus said you're supposed to be born again. And he said, he did not say that. He did not say that. Okay. John 3. I said, John 3, man, you've got to read the Bible. Read John 3 because that's where Jesus said, uh, to Nicodemus, who was a teacher of the Jews, a, a renowned man, he said, um, um, you must be born again. Are you a teacher of Israel? You don't understand these things? And he said, no, he said, no, he never said that. I said, look, if I had my, this was before he had phones. I said, uh, cell phones, I mean, uh, they had this Bible in them. I said, just read John 3. Or read First uh, Peter, when Peter acknowledges that these people that he's writing to have been born again by the Lord. They're born again. You need to be born again. And he's fighting with me. And I said, you know, man, read your Bible. I don't, you don't have to listen to me. Read it. Well, I don't even remember how this conversation ended. But it occurred to me as I left that meeting, here's a man who thinks he speaks for God. He doesn't. Why? Is it because he's not smart? No, he's a brilliant guy. It's because he didn't know the Bible. He didn't know what the Lord said. He didn't know about the Lord. He didn't know what the Lord liked and didn't like and what, he, what his plan was and how he set us up for salvation. And so that's not the guy that Isaiah or the Lord wants speaking in this verse that we're just landing on, the first verse. The assumption is that you know what you're talking about. 
it should be a compelling image for us as we think about how we serve the Lord in this community. You can't speak for him unless you know something of him. And the absolute primary way we know something about what he wants is through his word. Verse 10. Behold. Again, he says, behold. Listen up is what that, it's an emphasis of exhortation. Behold, verse 10. The Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Oh, okay, that's intense. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. Okay, that's powerful. That's who the Lord is. He's a powerful God, not to be messed with or trifled with. His arm rules. It's interesting. This verse emphasizes his arm of rulership. In the next verse, it emphasizes the, the arm, his arm of tender care. Again, one side and the other side, the same thing revealed in our God, the same God, different elements of his character. It is, to me anyway, just irresistible. Verse 11, he will, he will t- listen to the tenderness. This is the only verse in this section where he, he, he emphasizes his kindness. And as far as I can figure, as I've pondered and meditated on this section, he's going to give them a lot of news about his uh, information about his makeup and his character. But before he, he scares them to death, he wants them to know that he, he loves them. This is the only verse in this section that emphasizes his care for them. Like a mother, Isaiah 66. Holding the child on the hip and bouncing the child on her knee. Or, oh, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. Weeping. This is him. By the way, who's talking here? We're going to get into the creation. Where is Jesus in this text? Well, he's all over it. If you read John 1, 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. All things were made through him. The Logos of the Trinity, that's our Lord. The Logos of the Trinity, deeply involved in the creation. So when you read about the creation, you're reading about our Lord Jesus, the Logos of the Trinity, Revelation 1. So here we go back to verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs, in, the lambs in his arms. Oh, man. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. There's a, uh, a bush next to my garage that uh, is filled with leaves in the spring and summer and fall, but then in the winter it's completely uh, leafless and um, it's got very sharp branches. It's a pretty thick bush, bush a, lot of, a lot of branches that are very thick and you, it's, you can't get in there. Well, I noticed this winter that birds gather in the center of this bush. They gather there and as I, I walk up to them, about as close as this music stand is to me, and they just look at me. They're right in the middle of this bush. And I'm thinking, I thought, what, what are they doing? And why aren't they afraid of me? Because birds, they're little tiny birds. They're afraid. They're usually afraid. But they've got nothing to fear in that bush. You know why? Because I can't get in there. If I tried to get in there, and know, they know this with their little bird minds, they know that I can't get in there without hurting myself. They're completely safe. Completely safe. That's what it's like to be in Christ. That's what it's like. Fully protected, confident. These birds are completely confident I'm not going to bother them. I could put my face right next to that bush and they'd just be looking at me, and I've done that. But I thought, wow, what an amazing thing. God gives us uh, uh, his creation, and he teaches us lessons with simple things like this. He gathers his lambs in his arms. Now, by the way, 
based upon the previous verse and, and uh, the dangerous God that we have here, what do you think the shepherd would do? He gathers the sheep in his arms and he clothes them close to his, his bosom. What would he do if a wolf came up and tried to attack him? Well, he'd beat the stuffing out of that wolf, right? He would, he would defend his sheep with a staff, a rod and a staff. John 10. He carries us in his bosom and leads those who are with young. That's how he feels about you if you know Christ. That's how he feels about me. And we can have confidence in his care. He is severe. He likes this and he doesn't like that. Do it this way because I said so. But as a loving father or as a loving mother, he loves us with, a, with an intensity that we don't understand. So he, he paints that picture for us and now he's going to deliver some information that we need to be mindful of as we consider his character. Remember, we're talking about a ministry of comfort here. In verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? You know what the hollow of his hand is? He's helping us to understand who he is by using uh, human language. If you, if you take your hand and you cup it like this, that's the hollow of the hand. Now, he measures the waters, the deep oceans in the hollow of his hand. That's how big God is. You can't understand it. I can't understand it. The hollow of his hand. And if you take your hand and you do this, you'll see creases in your hand. That would be something like trenches in the ocean that we know exist. Uh, you may be familiar with the Mariana Trench. It's the deepest trench. There's about 15 of them around the globe. The Mariana Trench is off the coast of Indonesia. It's the deepest trench that we know of on the, on the earth but it's underwater. The Mariana Trench in the deepest part is seven miles below the surface of the water, seven miles down. The surface of the water, you go seven miles down, that's how deep that is. It's inconceivable. And so he, he created that, and then he created, uh, what's the highest peak in the world? Mount Everest in the Himalayan mountains. Mount Everest. Mount Everest is about five miles high, maybe five and a half. So if the Lord plucked out Mount Everest and plopped it in the Mariana Trench, the, the, the Mount Everest would be covered by a mile and a half of water. A mile and a half of water. You see, he is beyond our understanding. If, if God's hollow, hollow of his hand is like that, what's the rest of them like? He's beyond our understanding. And the fact that he would be interested in me or you as his children is just a stunning, it should be a compelling argument to pay attention to him and to seek him. So who is measured? He's saying it's a rhetorical question. He doesn't expect you to answer. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Well, nobody but him. And who's marked off the heavens with a span? What's a span? We don't use that word very much, but a span is the distance between the tip of your thumb to the tip of your index, uh, I'm sorry, the pinky. The tip of the pinky to the tip of the thumb. And so God, you'd picture God going, okay, there's, there's, I'm measuring things with the span of my hand. Amazing. Yeah, church is boring. It's not relevant. Continuing in verse 12, who's done this? Who's measured the, the waters in the hollow of his hand? And who's marked off the heavens with a span? Who's, who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measuring, a measure, like a measuring cup? Who, who has done that? Well, the Lord did. The Lord has done that. Who's weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? That's how big he is. In verse 13, who has measured the Spirit of the Lord or 
Another word for measured in some of your translations might say directed. Who's directed God's spirit, capital S? Who's directed his spirit, the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Well, there's not one. We're seeing his power. Now we're seeing his wisdom. He doesn't need my counsel. He doesn't need your counsel. If we are wise as part of God's general grace to people, the specific grace of God's wisdom is revealed specifically in his economy. No one has showed it to him, not one. If human counseling is right, it's right because it squares with God's word. Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Nobody. He's self-contained. He's, self, he's self-contained. He doesn't need anything. And at the same time, remember, he wants you and he wants me. Like children, the apple of his eye. Like a mother taking care of her little baby. Whom did he consult? Verse 14, who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Well, wisdom, nobody taught him that. He knew that. 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're tiny and are accounted as the dust of the scales. If you, if you look at Psalm chapter 2, uh, the, the writer of the psalm talks about the, the nations rage against the Lord and the Lord laughs at them. In derision, he's just not impressed with their rage. They can rage against him all they want. He's He's not worried about them. They're accounted as the dust on the scales. They're tiny, tiny. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. There's nothing, humanly speaking, that you can do that would be sufficient to offer to our God. Nothing. It's just because of his grace and mercy that we were able to even read his word and understand it. Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So, verse 18, to whom then, in other words, to whom then, okay, given what you just heard about me, he says, in these verses, in, in my power, my creation, my wisdom, my care for you, how tiny everything is, and yet my love for you, how, how I can be scary, but I'm also tender. Given all of this, to whom then will you liken God? Who's like him? Or what likeness compares with him? <laughs> Maybe an idol. That's what got them in trouble in the first place. They were making idols, and they were getting comfort in things that they crafted out of their own hands, or things they, they devoted their hearts to aside from the Lord himself. Maybe an idol will do it. Verse 19, a craftsman casts the idol, he casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and he casts it for its silver chains. And if you don't have enough money for that, verse 20, he is too impoverished for an offering, chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. It will not move. Why? Because it's an idol. It's just a piece of material. By the way, God made that material. It's pathetic. It's a pathetic contrast to God's work in the world. It's just pathetic. And we may be distracted by all kinds of idols, and we may be uh, uh, going through our own Christian rituals, but apart from the heart love for God, he's not happy with it. In verse 21, he says, you're supposed to know this, in essence. You're, you're supposed to know this. You're Jewish people. You're people who know the law. You're supposed to. And he says, don't, don't you know? Do you not know? Do you not hear? You should know this. Has it not been told you from the beginning? Since you were babies, you were taught 
about my economy. You were taught the law. You were taught what you should do and not do. You know what my economy is. Hasn't that been told you from the beginning? And have you not understood it from the foundations of the earth? Look around. Look in the heavens. Look around. Don't you know that I exist and I'm real and I, I want relationship with you? Verse 22, more convincing. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. The earth is not flat. It's he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants, its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Boy, oh boy. Do we need more? Do we need more how big God is? I guess we do. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. The macro, the big picture of God. He's going to get down to the micro later, but this is to show the breadth of God's understanding, the bigness of his creation. He's right there and he's aware of it. He did it himself. He made it. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and he spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Macro, big picture. Who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. China, Russia, Iraq, Ukraine, President this, Doctor that, CDC, the virus, you name it. He brings everything to nothingness and he makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Compared to him, they're nothing. Verse 24, scarcely are they planted. He says this word scarcely three times. We don't usually use that word this way, but listen to what he says. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, and when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. I like to plant things in my yard. Uh, I plant flowers, and, and Joyce and I, and, and uh, we, we plant uh, vegetables, and I enjoy flowers and bushes and things like that, and so we do this every year. Well, sometimes I'll plant a nice flower. I'm really excited about it, and I'll be able to look at it from my kitchen window over breakfast or whatever I'm doing. And Usually, they remain fine, and there's nothing. But sometimes I look out there, and there's a carcass of one of my flower plants. Just this, it's like a dead carcass. And I thought, well, I just planted this guy yesterday, and he's dead. Who did this? Why, what, what creature would just dig up my one flower and just leave it there for dead? He didn't eat the thing. He just, he just dug it up and killed it. And then one time I had a, uh, a sunflower plant, you know, the kind that grow real tall and they have big yellow flowers. I, I, I planted those, and it was allowed to grow for a little bit. It got about five feet high, and then some creature crawled up and snipped it at six inches and let it hang there. I thought, you know, I just planted that thing. That's the picture here. That's like people. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. I just did this. Scarcely are they taking power, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, and the Lord says, okay, you're done. You may rule, not you, but in his economy, people may rule and be self-important for decades, and, but for God, it's a moment in time, and he uses them for his own purposes. One of the things I love about Isaiah is God's sovereign control. He's mad at his people, and he punishes his people, and then he, he, he entices a pagan king to go and punish his people. You need to punish my people so they get their senses back about who I am and what my relationship is to be with them. And then when they're done, he says, okay, pagan king, you've done that. Now I'm going to punish you for hurting my people because you're proud now. You think you're hot stuff because you hurt my people. Well, okay, they're my people. They're not your victims. He's amazing. He blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. 
lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He's talking about the stars, the heavenly bodies. Who created them? Look, look, lift up your eyes and look around at night. And who created the stars? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By name. That's the micro piece. He's got this heavenly canopy. He built the universe, and then that's the macro piece, the big piece. But then he knows everything about every little detail. He's got all the stars numbered and named. Named. To us, it'd be an infinite number. We don't get it. We're stuck in our little Milky Way, but there's galaxies and, oh my goodness, it's beyond our ability to comprehend. But to him, to the great mind of God, he knows all of them by name. It's the tiniest detail. He knows that about you and I, by the way. The hairs in our head are all numbered. He knows every detail about us, and he loves us anyway. Called them by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Not one. He's astounding. And then he asks a question in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Well, they're discouraged. They are in deep, deep trouble. They've been overwhelmed by attackers. It's their own fault, of course, because God was, trying to get, was getting their attention through his sternness and his severity, but he was getting their attention so they would learn to pay attention to him and not to everything else. But here they're saying, I don't even think the Lord's paying attention to me anymore. I, I, if you've lived long enough, you've probably been there. I don't think the Lord's listening to me very well. I, he's not paying attention. Is he even there? Is he even listening? Does he even realize how much pain I'm in or how my hardships are so strong? He is. But he's saying, why are you saying this? Don't you know me? goes back to verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not known? You should have known. Have you not known these things? Have you not heard about them? Let me remind you, he says, verse 28, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. That's who he is. You're supposed to know him. And we're getting into a real sweet section, the last uh, second half of verses tw verse 28 all the way down to the end of the chapter. This is very sweet. I hope you're listening. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. By the way, you'll notice in verse 29 when he says he gives power to the faint, all this time he's been talking about how great he is. He's been talking about, did you do this? Did you do this? I've done that. I've done this. My creation, my power, my wisdom, my righteousness, my justice, everything. But in verse 29, he shifts and he says, I'm going to give you in according of who I am. In accordance with who I am, I'm going to give you power. Now, if you don't want that, then you don't want a really good thing. If you don't want that, if people can't drag themselves out of their kitchens or out of their beds to come and receive power from the Lord, they're missing a really good thing. The dailiness of life. Another day, another week, another year. Another day, another week, another year. Well, if you get tired, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. You just need to lean in and realize when we are in Christ, we all have all the benefits of a son or a daughter of the great king. 
all the benefits, forgiveness, eternal life, the care of a loving father, the picture of a loving mother. And verse 30, even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. He is the source. He is the source. Oftentimes, we seem to get confused about sources versus resources. I think, for example, for example, some of us might struggle with thinking that our, our spouse is a source. Uh, no, your spouse is not a source. Your spouse is a resource. God has given you this out of his own might, out of his own order. He's a source. He's given you different things. He's given you your spouse for the role he or she has in life as a, a helper or as a, uh, as, a, as a shepherd leader like Jesus. He provides resources like copper, iron ore. Those are all natural resources. And God, out of who he is, provides resources to us. Whether, whatever your gifts are or your talents are, that's not because of you. You might as well brag about your elbows. It's foolishness. It's just utter foolishness. If we'd realize how big he is and how really we need him so much, we wouldn't be bored in church. We wouldn't be bored with thinking about him. We wouldn't. We need to be reminded and preach the gospel to ourselves every day how we are loved and cared for by this amazing God of the universe who sent the Logos, his only begotten son, to live a perfect life and die and rise conquering death for our benefit and for our life with him. Just wait for him. I appreciate First Peter when uh, Peter writes to the believing people, don't, don't run out or uh, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and the picture of God's hand on your head or on your shoulder. And I'm, un I'm uncomfortable. I'm not happy here. I'm uncomfortable, Lord. I want to run out. I want to leave this. I want to escape that. No, don't. Just wait. Rest and wait for him. Reminded now of uh, Isaiah 7, where Isaiah was talking to King Ahaz, and um, Ahaz was being threatened by this pagan king, and Ahaz was terrified. He should have been terrified. He was terrified, and the people were terrified. They were shaking like reeds in the wind. And Isaiah says, um, be quiet, be still. Be quiet, be still. It's a good lesson for us. Be quiet, be still. Listen, think about who he is. Think about who God is. And he says to Ahaz, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. You're going to collapse. Rely on me. Use me as your source of strength. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. Oh, they mount up with wings like eagles. How powerful. You ever see an eagle fly and land in his nest on top of a large tree? It's awesome. God made that bird as a picture for us, as he's using, using it right here to edify us and to encourage us. They shall, they shall, people who wait for him and receive his power, they'll mount up with wings like eagles and they'll run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. I wanted to close uh, with a quote from Samuel Rutherford, who I think really gets this. Uh, you may not know who Samuel Rutherford is, was. He was a, a Scottish pastor, theologian in the 1600s. He was a, um, just a, a great man of God. And he, he, uh, he is thought to have written the, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which 
I'm imagining that most of us are familiar with, where uh, the first point of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, uh, asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy, to enjoy him forever. There's about 107 points in the Shorter Catechism. But Samuel Rutherford wrote those, uh, those points. Here's what he says, and I pray that it sinks into our hearts and minds. Here's what he says. The Christ who saves you is a speaking Christ. The Christ who saves you is a speaking Christ. The church knows him by his voice, and they can discern his voice among a thousand others. Christ who saves you is a speaking Christ. He's not dead, he's alive. And he speaks to us in many ways, largely through his word. The Christ who saves you is a speaking Christ. The church knows him by his voice and can discern his voice among a thousand others. Well, I pray that's true for us. So what are we to do? It seems to me, if I understand the word properly, here's what we are to do. We are to listen for his voice through all the distractions of life, through our phones and whatever it might be that's distracting us largely where we can't sit quietly and ponder who he is, listen for him. Just listen for him through his word, through the quietness of your own spirit. Listen for his voice. Look for him in all things. Look for his hand. Seek him. He's there. And remember what you have learned of him. Remember what he's like. Remember his character. This, was, this whole principle of the kindness and severity of God was hammered home to me in a new way uh, when Lucas was preaching two, two weeks ago, I think it was, from Romans 11. In, in Romans 11.22, uh, Paul writes and speaks of uh, the kindness and the severity of God. And I was sitting right there, and I thought, that's it. That's it right there. That's what I've been thinking about. He's, he's irresistible. All we have to do is, is rip the scales off of our eyes and our hearts to understand his awesomeness and his love for us. For each of us. He's compelling. Listen for his voice. Look for him in all things. Remember what you know. Remember what you know of him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this lovely morning. It's a beautiful day, Lord. You speak to us, and uh, we are to listen. Uh, you are an exacting God. You like things done a certain way, and you don't love us to pamper us. You love us and correct us to make us more useful for you, to glorify you, like a good father or a good mother. You're interested in our usefulness to you to bring you glory in this broken, lost world. Help us to be joyful as we do this work. Help us to know uh, that we are to be athletes and like athletes, like soldiers, like farmers. Uh, help us to be more than we are and to do more than we do by becoming more than we are under the hand of your guidance and your care for us to empower us, Lord, I pray in the great Savior Jesus' name. Amen.